Before it was even conceivable that LGBTQ people would openly run for office, serve in the military, or legally get married, just living life as a gay person was a threatened, precarious experience. Historian Timothy Stewart Winter tells us about a time when gay and black communities came together to fight the state violence they both faced. In the 1950s and 60s, police raids on gay and lesbian bars and clubs were a constant threat. One of the techniques that police would use was sending undercover officers in to kind of witness illegal behavior, which could include even serving a drink to a homosexual. In many states, it was against state liquor regulations for gay people just to be in an establishment serving liquor. You know, they might just intimidate folks, or they might round everybody up and cart them off to jail, typically charging them with something like disorderly conduct or other kind of catch-all charges. At the same time, there's also individual-level policing. So cops are picking up gay men who are cruising on the street. They are also arresting lesbians just for, uh, you know, for wearing men's blue jeans, if you can believe it. Now, were there any instances or how might you describe the interaction between racist policing and anti-gay policing? Specifically, how did gay or working-class African-Americans bear the brunt of police brutality during this period? For African-Americans, you know, the risk of harassment from police officers or brutality at the hands of police officers was present whether you were gay or straight. At the same time, the sort of growing carceral state of the post-World War II decades took some of its harshest actions against queer people of color. So, for instance, there's a a guy I've written about in Chicago named Ron Vernon, who was a gay activist in the early 70s who described growing up on the south side of Chicago, going to an all-black high school, and being sort of essentially sent before a judge in youth court as a result of his flamboyance, his, his visible gayness, queerness. And in a hearing, his father was asked by the judge, you know, are you aware that your son is a homosexual? And Mr. Vernon said, yes. And the judge sort of said, well, then we're going to send him to Galesburg Mental Institution to correct that. And Vernon went on to spend much of his teen years kind of in and out of the ambit of youth justice system, I guess you would say. And as I understand, some of your work has actually revealed that you have gay activists and black nationalists drawing coalitions in American cities. Yeah, it's a different type of policing that's affecting white gay folks, you know, cruising or going to gay bars. And yet these are both forms of state violence. They're both forms of state control. And partly because they're both so aggressive in Chicago, there is a coalition that develops to respond to both, to fight both. And I'm curious about how you understand that cooperation, how deep it went, and how we can understand its history, that link between gay politics and black nationalist politics. The link really has to do with a shared enemy in the form of the police. In December of 1969, Illinois Black Panther Party leaders were killed while sleeping in their bed. There was a backlash and a kind of widespread sense on the political left that the police were totally out of control. And at the local level, this led to a kind of umbrella civil libertarian group called the Alliance to End Repression, which 
oversaw a bunch of different kinds of efforts to rein in the police over the course of the 70s and into the 80s, which included both trying to end police raids on gay bars, as well as secure consent decrees, kind of reigning in the police red squad. Give me some sense of the strategies that gay activists used to confront these kinds of excesses of state power. So beginning in the early 1970s, there's kind of a, an effort to monitor the monitors or police the police. They actually send undercover people into busy gay bars so that they could serve as witnesses later if the police did conduct a raid. They also, you know, began to publicize, to try to tell to the press, this is what's happening to the gay community. You know, before the late 60s, there are very few gay people who are willing to come forward publicly and have their name associated with the cause. You know, there were no gay celebrities. There were very few people lining up behind this cause. And that stumbling block is the reason that coming out of the closet, which was really invented after Stonewall at the turn of the 1970s, kind of changed the game a little bit in that people were willing to come forward publicly to accuse individual cops or, or fight charges rather than just accept the bargain for, for a lower charge. Even at the most local level, you don't have any openly gay elected officials in the U.S. until the 1970s. You know, gay people were the opposite of law-abiding citizens. They frequented illegal places. They were engaged in illegal acts in most states. They couldn't hold jobs as teachers or government officials pretty much anywhere. And being outed would mean that you would lose any public sector job the 1980s are obviously a huge watershed for a number of reasons in the history of, of gay politics and gay activism, and not the least of which being that you have the election of a mayor in Chicago that you know well, Harold Washington. And, and Washington was very explicit in trying to continue to bridge this relationship between gay politics and African-American politics, again, understood as different communities that have overlapping interests. I think this is a great example of what we miss when we only look at the federal level of politics. You know, the story of the 1980s at the federal level is about Ronald Reagan. But in Chicago and many other big cities, you have African-American-led liberal political coalitions that win power and that are trying to defend the gains that were won by the civil rights movement. And also are kind of trying to defend public spending at a time when it's being slashed. How might we understand the 80s and 90s as a time when you have gay activists who are thinking about employment and really mainstreaming their issues, and African Americans who, because of their concerns about HIV AIDS, are still sometimes not responding as forcefully to gay issues that are certainly part of the political calculus there? In the 1970s, the uh, routine police harassment of predominantly white establishments, gay establishments, um, pretty much drops off. Uh, by the early 80s, this is no longer routine in most cities. Um, the gay movement starts to take up a different issue, which is uh, protection from job discrimination, which they are usually seeking from city councils. And so this is more of a kind of insider kind of politics, brand of politics. You have AIDS, which comes along and really radicalizes um, the, the gay movement, um, but, but not 
especially around policing, but instead around healthcare. And um, and so the gay movement is shifting away from a focus on the carceral state at the same time that the carceral state is is expanding. Um, and so the, the kind of tension between those two dynamics over the course of the 70s and 80s uh, you know, I think is is uh, has been overlooked as uh, a, a key aspect of what was going on in the United States in that period, and the AIDS crisis adds another layer in that there's this awful respectability politics. You have one really vivid anecdote: a young man who tells his mother, uh, African American that, you know, the bad news is I have AIDS. The good news is that I'm a drug addict. And, and why is that good news? The idea being that he's not gay, that he didn't become HIV positive as a result of having sex with a man. Wow. And so the AIDS crisis, along with the crack epidemic and the rise of homelessness and poverty in the 80s, you have multiple extremely stigmatized communities that are kind of wanting to distance themselves from each other in the sense of gay men and injecting drug users. And that makes forming political coalitions more complicated. Uh, you know, AIDS also exposes the vast gulf in resources in a segregated city like Chicago between white-run gay institutions and organizations which are located in increasingly white parts of the city. And meanwhile, the south and west sides of Chicago don't have the same kind of access to resources to respond to AIDS with. And that creates a, a lot of tensions among activists over the course of the 80s. Within the last decade or so, we've seen a number of movements, even coming from queer activists, about the carceral state and trying to deal with the problem of mass incarceration. Where do some of these coalitions hold up under that issue? I think we've seen certainly the the gay movement moving toward a more critical stance toward policing and certainly towards the prison system. We've had the high-profile case of Chelsea Manning drew attention to some of the very serious health problems facing incarcerated LGBTQ folks. And at the same time, we have had Black Lives Matter, which, which is a a genuinely intersectional movement with a lot of, of visible queer leadership articulating the ways in which these systems of oppression interlock and in which state power operates through classifying people by gender and sexuality. I think the sort of gay movement has been a little bit resistant in some ways. And, you know, there, we've seen in the last couple of years controversies over whether out gay police officer groups can march in pride parades, which have really led to some, some serious controversies in a number of cities. And I think next year, during the anniversary of, of the Stonewall Rebellion, I think that that's very likely to be even more controversial. Uh, I think we're going to see more conflict over whether law enforcement should be kind of visible in queer spaces and, and what that should look like. Timothy Stewart Winter is associate professor of U.S. history at Rutgers Newark and the author of the book Queer Clout, Chicago and the Rise of Gay Politics. 
As we've just heard, relations between the police force and the gay community have often been strained. During his service as a police officer, Stephen Thorne saw the issue from the inside as a groundbreaker, as one of the first out lesbian officers, and then as the first officer to transition while serving in the San Francisco Police Department. Here's how he responded when I asked him what it was like coming out as a lesbian teenager in Lincoln, Nebraska in the 1970s. You mean what was it like being a criminal? (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, challenging. That would be the word that I would use. Um, It was against the law to be a homosexual Mm -hmm. at the time. We were outlaws. I didn't really know anyone else um, that I knew was a lesbian or a a gay man that was in my own uh, social circle. And my sister, my older sister, she's about six years older than I am, she, uh, she happened to know a gay man. He was very flamboyant. He was a hairdresser. And I really needed to find someone that I could confide in. So I don't remember exactly how I asked or got a hold of his number from my sister. And I asked him to meet me. And I was able to tell him that I was like him. And I recall the feeling, just almost a physical sensation of a weight being lifted from my shoulders. It was amazing. When did you first apply to work in law enforcement? Uh, Actually, I applied to the Omaha Police Department. They have a physical agility test and a written test, and I I did all of that. And uh, I was their highest scoring female candidate. Mm. But they had a polygraph exam. And during that polygraph exam, they asked about my sexuality, which I tried to hide. So he kept, you know, he, I was in there for over three hours in a polygraph exam, hooked up to machines. And, you know, finally, it, it's like, well, yes. So I told the truth. And um, I was not hired. I didn't get a job. Tell me about what it was like moving to San Francisco in the late 1970s and how different your experience was there applying for Bay Area police forces. Oh, a world away. When I came to San Francisco, it was just spectacular. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to move. You know, the first thing that I did was to pick up one of the gay rags. Uh, There were at least two that were free weekly newspapers. And when I opened one of those papers or both of those weekly papers, uh, lo and behold, there was a nice big ad from the SFPD reaching out, and it was a recruitment ad um, for out lesbians and gay men. Talk about a contrast from Omaha. Talking <laughs> talking about a contrast from Omaha. And that was it. It was right. like, oh, my God, I can do this here. Right, right. So that's what I did, and I applied. And the other thing that had occurred, you know, the previous November, a couple of months before that, was the assassinations of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. Mm. in San Francisco. So it was certainly a very charged time. But I wanted to be here very, very much, even with everything, maybe especially with everything that was going on. The movement being so strong here, the, the I was certainly aware of Harvey being the first openly gay person elected to public office. And, uh, and then he'd been murdered... <laughs> Um, so I knew work needed to be done. Right. 
Now, you have the experience of coming out not once but twice and, and, and coming out as a trans officer in San Francisco. How was that experience comparatively and, and just on its own? Well, it was different. It was, you know, it was fraught with fear for me as an adult transitioning mm. from female to male. You know, a couple of the fears I had um, of loss was that, you know, either I could be fired from my job, potentially. I didn't think there were any kinds of protections over gender identity at the time. Or if they didn't outright fire me or didn't feel that they could do that, that they'd try to make my life so miserable at work that I would want to quit. Um, and the, the final or most severe fear that I felt was, um, what if officers failed to back me up in the field? And I have to, I, I'm so happy to say that I really grossly underestimated not only the professionalism, but the compassion of the people that I worked with. Because none, none of my fears were realized. Was it easy? No. Were there people who made it very apparent to me that they disliked me and disliked that I was a member of the department? Yes. Um, but there were many more, many more officers who were respectful and compassionate and kind and tolerant. And once you're on the police force, you're actively developing training programs that are meant to make the police force even more responsive and responsible to members of the LGBT community. Well, I was, yes. Jameson Green and I, who was a very well-known uh, trans activist and educator, I had met him in the FTM support group that he uh, was involved with in San Francisco at the time. And he and I wrote curriculum for law enforcement training, and we began teaching it together in June of 1995 to San Francisco Police Academy recruits. And I continued to do that until I retired. And now, even in my retirement, I actually train law enforcement personnel still, uh, anti-bias and gender uh, awareness, education, and training. From your vantage point as a retired officer now, what advice would you give a young LGBT person who's potentially interested in a career in law enforcement? How would you explain why you continue to do this training and remain committed to these issues? And, and what is it you think that can be improved overall about policing, given your experience? Well, to other LGBT people and any other marginalized group in our society, I can do nothing but encourage you to go into law enforcement. The most powerful change that has occurred in law enforcement has been integration. Having mm -hmm. racial minorities and women and lesbians and gay people and uh, now transgender people included in that has really changed the culture from when I, certainly from when I joined law enforcement back in the late 70s. It's very different now. It is not a completed process, however, as people are well, you know, certainly racial minorities are well aware that just because there are laws on the book that protect you uh, doesn't mean that discrimination vanishes. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. But doing it from the inside is just as important and just as significant and moves us further than only being able to do it from the outside. So anybody who's considering a career in law enforcement, please go for it. Participate um, and
and, and do it well and do it with consciousness. Lieutenant Stephen Thorne served for over 30 years in the San Francisco Police Department. Nathan, Joanne, I want to know whether there were any gay founders. Well, so here's the thing about that question, Brian, and that is it's hard to draw lines and impose labels. People wonder, and there's talk of was Alexander Hamilton gay or not? Did he have a relationship with his close friend, John Lawrence, or not? And I think it's hard to say either way. You certainly can't say no But it's unclear what that relationship was. It might have been a romantic friendship. It might have been more than that. I think there are whole categories of same-sex relationship in this time period that precisely because they weren't labeled were in the realm of possibility. A lot of the dividing lines and labels that we take for granted now didn't really exist in early America. Mm. So although there were all kinds of same-sex relationships, although there were even same-sex relationships that were treated like a marriage, people at the time wouldn't have identified themselves necessarily as gay, although they might have understood that something about their identity shouldn't be made public. It's a very fuzzy way of saying that I think in early America there was a continuum of ways in which people understood their sexuality, and I think that over time, we've imposed borders and, and definitions and dividing lines that didn't exist in that early period. Well, in early America, were there any terms used at all? I, I understand your point, and it's a good one, about a continuum. But were the ends of that continuum labeled? Certainly in the early 19th century, sometimes they used phrases like um, female husbands or wedded bachelors. Mm. You know, they were, they were using a lot of kind of like language to, to not define things, but certainly to indicate that there was an understanding of what kind of a relationship there was. So Nathan, what does it mean uh, that we managed to found and run a country <laughs> for a century or so um, without having terms that are, you know, just so familiar to us today? Right. It's relatively, you know, recent in American history where we get so caught up in these questions, actually as recent as the 20th century. By the time you get to the late 30s, the policing of gay people in American cities increases as the cities themselves begin to grow. And and it really isn't until the 1940s and 50s that you begin to see what we would now call the closet, which is this space where gay men and women have to basically begin to conceal their identities for reasons of employment or having other kinds of opportunities. Um, I, I want to say one other thing, though, about that, which is that there are other kinds of categories, like, for instance, transgender, that people are experiencing as identities in this period, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that only has political meaning by the time you get to the late 20th century. My favorite example of this is Pauli Murray, a really critical legal mind on civil rights, um, an African-American woman for most of her life. Um, she is a student at Howard who helps to frame what becomes the fight against Jim Crow through the courts. 
Well, she actually lives most of her life believing herself to be a man or feeling as if she's a man in a woman's body. But there's no gender corrective surgery that she can draw from. There's no debate about what it means to be a transgendered man. And so there becomes a point where her own alienation and disconnect from the broader body politic drives her politics on civil rights, drives her mission to basically correct and try to make American society more equitable and more open. And so it it provides a really signal example of people who would totally see themselves on one side of a political debate in the late 20th century if they had that ability to belong to that community 50 or 60 years earlier. So, Joanne, I want you to train your skilled cultural, social, political historian's eye on this raft of categorization uh, or lack of categorization in the, in the case of transgender. And tell us what this means. I mean, what does this look like from the perspective of early America? What's going on? Well, here's what I find interesting in the, the realm of categories and, and borders and boundaries and labels. I talked a little bit about how in early America, I think there was more of a continuum. So I think that the borders or differences were much more fluid and there weren't labels being stamped on people in the way that they are now. But what's interesting, and I would like actually to hear what you two guys think about this, feels to me like right now we're at a moment where there's more fluidity being introduced and where some of those labels are being cast off or, or new ideas are being introduced. So are we in a different kind of a period when it comes to gay identity? You read my mind because I had in mind this Washington Post article that says a third of millennials now say that they're, quote, less than 100% straight, which first sounded like the way I parked my car. But when I started thinking about it, I realized, you know, this is the kind of fluidity that I associated, and now you've confirmed, with early America, where there aren't these stark boundaries. But we all know that at least in the second half of the 20th century, one of the reasons that language changed and uh, homosexuality uh, and then transgender, bisexuality, queer became more acceptable is that the very people who live these lives advocated for this. They came out. So... I'm curious to know uh, how any changes were made in the 19th century uh, when people didn't even have a language for identifying who they were. Well, I mean, I think there's a reason why. (laughs) There are many reasons why, but there's certainly one main reason why, as we've been talking about in the show today, political activism is a mid and late 20th century phenomenon, because I think you need a sense of groupness, right? You have to have a sense of yourself as part of a group. And ironically, Joanne, part of that sense of groupness comes from being discriminated against, from being labeled in a pejorative way. Right. So I think it's not all about identity, but it's it's about a a meeting place of identity and opportunity. And I think this is really important because you have your examples, even going back to the colonial period where so-called cross-dressing or, you know, women who are masquerading as men or vice versa. But there are ways in which people are looking for openings of one kind or another. Um, and this is it's true of so many different passing accounts, whether it's black to white or what have you. And so I think it's it's really important to look 
at what the society of a given moment offers. And so I think it's really critical when you look at the ability of the government or of private sector business to still allow people to be whole people while adopting their gender identity, that tends to determine who and how people identify openly when it comes to these questions of sexuality and identity. So I want to add a third word then. You talked about identity and opportunity. So I want to throw a third word in that that goes right along with what you're saying, Nathan, and that is possibility, which is a slightly different thing and in a way is the hardest to define and maybe in some senses the most important, that, that you can understand the possibilities for becoming who you are, who you think you are, who you want to be. That's something that's hard to define, but that's something that obviously is immensely important. 